0: To another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cotchololo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger and Psychic, and author of Who Do Justice Magic, Ms. Aida, and binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co host jared murphy author of it's not aliens it's worse it's us if you are interested in contributing to this show go to my website everythingimaginable 2020.com and you'll find everything you need there now without further ado our guest for today is rosemary thornton and her new book out is called remembering delight how dying saved my life thank you for coming on today I don't know either.
1: But I can hear you now nice and clearly. Cool.
0: So I just introduced your new book, um, Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. Um, so um, I guess uh, you know for, for some of the listeners that haven't heard you before on my show, do you want to give a little overview of about what happened and how this book came about?
1: Sure. Um a little overview <laughs> let's see if I can condense five words five years to to 50 words <laughs> well
0: like 15 20 minutes
1: okay the very short version is I married the love of my life I thought we were married 10 years he was uh, successful sophisticated handsome interesting brilliant erudite professorial you know uh, also loved big words like me I thought we had a really good marriage. One day, he uh, came home for lunch and ended his life and used a gun. Uh, pretty, pretty messy ending. Being, I had at this point in my life, I'd already written nine books, and I was a sensitive soul. I'd been a writer for gosh decades. I'd written articles and magazine articles, newspaper, everything. And I loved him. I mean, losing somebody to suicide under any circumstances is hell but it was the, the suicide really is a death not like no other but also he was my family you know he was my he was my person losing a spouse is always hard but losing them this way was unbelievable and the the subsequent losses were massive he was a primary lien holder on the house so the mortgage company which by the way was a great big bank in America they immediately began foreclosure proceedings and uh They were very difficult to deal with, so I ultimately had to sell the house at uh, a very low price uh, because I was in such a rush because of the mortgage company foreclosing on me. And I ended up, uh, actually at that point, I ended up living with a friend. Uh, I, I fell so far so fast. It was such a severe trauma. I really liken severe trauma. We're more like stroke victims. I Mm -hmm. lost my gross motor skills, my fine motor skills. I literally lost the ability to write checks. I just, my hand trembled so bad. And uh, it was pretty messed up. I moved in with a friend. I actually lived out of the car briefly. I just a few days and one of my friends found out. She said, we're not doing that. You're not living out of the car. So I had gone from being this successful author married to a, a nice fancy fellow to sweeping in a Camry. And that's a pretty hard fall pretty fast. And from there, this friend took care of me for four months, which was great, and by take care of me, I mean, I would awaken the household in the middle of the night with my nightmares screaming, screaming loudly and frequently. I had recurring nightmares that uh, I saw my husband's suicide again and again and again and again and again. And, And often in the nightmares, I would get to him before he pulled the trigger. And I would fall at his feet and say, please don't do this. Please stop. Please don't do this. And other times I would run up to him just as he pulled the trigger. So, you know, even night, I couldn't even find respite at night. And it doesn't take long for that kind of stuff to make a person crazy. So this very dear friend took care of me for four months. One of my favorite things she did from that time, she took me into her home. She took a crazy person into her home. But she worked terribly long hours, and she said, she told me many months after all this, she said, you know, I would come in your room at night to check on you, and you'd often be laying there in the dark, and you would be crying or moaning or, or th- writhing in the bed. And she said, I would stand at the foot of the bed, and I would pray for you, and I would ask God to give you peace and to give your heart peace and to give your soul rest and that you may have restful slumbers. And she said, invariably, you always calmed down, you quieted down, you stopped writhing, and you fell into a more restful sleep and i i mean that's what suicide survivors as we are known that's what we most need is somebody just to give us to share their love and their light and their peace with us and i was i i I, you know i wrote a part of the reason i wrote a book about this is one for my own sake writing helps me think and also i i was actually not i had zero interest in writing a book about this topic zero but then uh In fact, just days after my husband's suicide—I guess it was two days after my husband's suicide— one of my daughters hauled me up to an urgent care center because I had lost the ability to swallow. I couldn't swallow liquid. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't even swallow water. And you know, it doesn't take long for a person to fade when they can't even get liquid down. So my daughter took me to this urgent care facility, and um, she—you know—she and I are in the exam room. I'm sitting on the edge of the little table there, and. This doctor comes in, probably about my age, fifties, and he looks at us and he briefly glances at the file and he says, So what's the problem, ladies? And my daughter says, Her husband killed her, killed himself two years, uh, two days ago and she can't keep anything down. She can't even swallow. This doctor literally reeled back in horror and he, he literally backed up into a wall and he said, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. He said, my Aunt Bertha did the same thing. My Aunt Bertha's husband did the same thing 45 years ago, and she was never right in the head again. And my daughter, much to her credit, she said, Doctor, that is not helpful. Can you help my mother or not? And he ended up writing up a prescription for 60 benzodiazepines, which is a powerful tranquilizer, Mm -hmm. and sent us on our way. And I shared this story about a year out. I gave a talk on this whole thing, and I shared this story. And a woman came up to me after the talk, and she said, You need to write a book. And I said, nope, 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 not me. I've written nine books, that's enough. She said, no, that story about the doctor's reaction, she said in the medical field we're still learning how to deal with victims of severe trauma. And she said, that story really bespeaks what happens. Doctors don't know how to deal with this stuff. And I was not schizophrenic. I was not bipolar. I was a relatively normal person who would enjoyed some success as an author and and by success I mean I sold books you know authors are the original starving (laughs) artist but nobody knew what to do with me so that's the reason I wrote a book is I thought you know maybe maybe this whole story can help be a blessing to others so anyway two and a half years went this way 29 months and I had learned how to be polite in society I had learned that people's you know I didn't want to hear anymore get over it get over it move on you should be over this by now there's no way Nobody walking this earth, I don't, like Aunt Bertha, 45 years out, they're still struggling. So I knew that I had to put on my happy face when I went out into the world and it was quite difficult, quite difficult, doesn't begin to define it. And one example of this, I was actually at a little coffee shop on the East Coast and pretending to be normal, you know, pretending to have the happy, I, I, well, I tell you what, I should get an Oscar for the performances I gave as a as a person appearing to be happy but anyway i'm sitting at this little table by myself trying to get back into the world trying to reengage. and this was about 26 27 months after his death and i was seated at a little table by a door and the door somebody went out the door and the wind caught it and it slammed with tremendous force and when it slammed i jumped up from that table i was startled i mean i had ptsd i was very startled and I screamed at nobody in particular. I and mean, this was a crowded little coffee shop. I screamed, what the F is wrong with you? I mean, in a very loud voice. And the thing was, I didn't intend to do that. But I was just so frightened, so startled. Frankly, it sounded like a gunshot. And I was humiliated, so I grabbed my little uh, smoothie and ran out the door. And those things happened a lot. And I actually, while I say I went out with friends, I would only go out with friends that I trust. One day I was at a Walmart with somebody and I had a panic attack right there in the middle of the store. In fact, I saw the kind of chair my husband had sat in and his wife, the same type of chair in a Walmart. I caught a glance of it, had a major freak out. And I turned to my friend, her name was Donna. I turned to my friend Donna and I said, I can't breathe. I have to get out of here. And she handed me the keys to the car. She said, do we need to go home right now or can we're sitting in the car be okay? I said, no, 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 I can sit in the car. Go on and finish your shopping. I'll be okay. I just have to get out of this building and sit in your car. And she handed me the keys and said, go. And I did. And that's the kind of friends I would hang out with. You know, there are people who would say, you know, take some deep breaths. We're going to keep walking. You're going to get over this. You're going to be okay. Wrong answer. Something I learned fairly recently is if you feel like you're in control of your environment, that helps ameliorate the PTSD symptoms. So I was pretty careful about with whom I hung out. So uh, at 29 months, I was also battling. Every night I prayed three prayers. Every single night, God either heal me or let me die. Uh no more hard decisions because of his death there had been many difficult legal financial decisions that had to be made like selling the house uh dealing with the mortgage company dealing with a foreclosure being threatened that the sheriff's going to be at your door in a few days we haven't heard from you it's awful so many hard decisions had to be faced legal decisions etc and then (laughs) an aside from that I couldn't face decisions to a point. I mean, this serious decision fatigue to a point that I actually went out and I bought twelve white polo shirts and four pairs of jeans. So in the morning I could open my closet, pull out a shirt, pull out a pair of jeans, and I was done. Didn't have to decide a color. I knew every day what I was going to wear. And the third prayer was no life review. And I know you know people giggle at that, but the fact is, if you've been through severe trauma of this level, I'd seen a suicide enough. I'd seen it in my nightmares. I'd seen it in my head. I had questioned myself. I had been through hell, and I didn't want to see that again. Did not want a life review. So those were my three prayers. And then I was also dealing, struggling with suicidal temptations. And just days, uh well, 29 months in, I actually wrote in my personal journal. I kept a gratitude list every day. And one of the items on my gratitude list was, I did not kill myself today. It was a win. Mm -hmm. God, please remove these devilish temptations from my soul. So I was staying alive, unfortunately, mostly through willpower and the prayers of others. They were a huge blessing. So then 29 months comes, I get diagnosed with cancer. I had had some very odd symptoms. I knew something was wrong with my body, and I ended up going to a doctor when I had some symptoms with my Uh, I guess lady parts, whatever. And I went to a gynecologist and they diagnosed me as having cervical cancer. And I was pretty angry and blown away, frankly. I thought, God, I was pretty clear in my prayers. Either heal me or let me go. I didn't say, let me die of a lingering, difficult disease. And then I went to, I was immediately referred to a gynecological oncologist and they said it was stage two. In fact, upon examination, they said it had advanced to a point where the flesh was distorted, so things were starting to get twisted up. And he did a cervical biopsy, which unfortunately required a hospital visit. Uh, I was anesthetized, and the work and the surgery was done. And then, upon awakening, because you know they want you out of that room, you know they wake you up in the recovery room, and out you go, off you go, time to go home. And I went to the bathroom, and I came back and said something's very wrong. I'm bleeding profusely. And she said, you know, once you get home and lie down, you'll be fine. And two more times, I realized I was losing a tremendous amount of blood. And two more times, I told, I told that R.N. in the recovery room. I am bleeding profusely. I'm 59 years old. Something isn't right. But they dismissed it and sent me on home. But once at home, it just got worse. And it got so bad, I ended up, I just wanted to go to bed. You know, I just wanted to lay down and go to sleep and forget the whole day ever happened. But... Once I got home, I, <laughs> I had this really pretty light carpet throughout my house, almost white carpet. I was really worried about messing up the carpet because, you know, when you're bleeding to death, the number one thing is housekeeping. So I, <laughs> I was really worried about the carpet. <laughs> so I, I stood in the shower, and I just watched the blood go down the drain. And I remember thinking, one of the very first Bible verses, I, when people would come visit me in the early days after the suicide, I would ask them to read the Bible to me, and one of the first Bible verses that really resonated, it said, God will show you a way out. And I think it's 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, but I'm not sure I have to look that up. But I thought, standing in that shower, I thought, this is God's mercy, this is God's grace, this is my way out. I won't have done this to myself. I'm bleeding to death. And I thought, wow, well, all I have to do is sit down on the shower floor, and I'm done. It won't take long, I'm losing so much blood so fast, this won't be long at all. And I thought about that, and then I thought about the two friends that had brought me home from the hospital, sitting on the other wall, sitting on the other side of this wall, in the living room. And I thought, is that really fair that they come in this place and find me splayed on the floor, splayed on a tile floor, dead from bleeding out? I thought that that would be an ugly thing to see. So I knew once I sat down, I wouldn't be able to get back up. So I pushed off the shower wall, and ambulance came and got me, took me to a tiny little yard. ER. In the yard, ER, they made more mistakes. And they, again, were dismissive. I actually, at this point, I'm lying on a gurney in this ER. And by the way, it was an ER that was not attached to a hospital. It was a standalone ER. Mm -hmm. And I'm lying on that gurney. And I grabbed the RN's hand, another RN at my side, different hospital, well, different hospital affiliation, different city. And I grabbed that nurse's hand. I said, promise me you're not going to let me die. Because, you know, now I'm in it. Let's do this. Let's get this right. And she looked in my face with great maternal affection almost very motherly very kind very solicitous very tender and she said oh honey we're not going to let you die we have many solutions for this and i was so comforted by that i thought all right well they did make some more boo-boos and they gave me a shot of dilaudid which is a morphine derivative and what i guess they did not realize was i had lost a catastrophic amount of blood so that morphine derivative apparently just went right to my heart and you know I'm already down a few few pints there, mm-hmm. and I was I, I was unconscious probably in sixty seconds. And then my friend uh, again, I had a friend there in the room with me. He said the blood pressure cuff because they left me the doctor and the nurse left the room, and the blood pressure cuff. My friend said at the last uh, next last time he saw it in flight, it said my blood pressure was thirty two over twenty five, which is pretty much dead. And he said at that point, he, he stood up to go get some help, and he said, my eyes opened. And I tried to sit up on the gurney. And, you know, that's actually what I've learned is very common, is the last, the last energy that goes into the dying process. Yeah. People show this burst of energy. I tried to sit up on the gurney. I couldn't quite sit up. So I raised my hand. He said, you raised your arms up to the sky, wiggled your fingers, you know, raised your head up off the gurney. And he said, you talked to somebody only you could see. And he said, you, you actually wiggled your fingers like a child reaching up for, God, reaching up for a father. And, and he said, and then you flopped back down. Blood pressure machine said error at the next reading. And that's what got the nurse to come back. And the alarm went off on the blood pressure machine. And she came in. And they shooed him out. But meanwhile, I was having the time of my life. <laughs> I was having a great time. Oh, my. I, uh, I awakened out of what I would only describe as a deep, dreamless state. And I awakened being catapulted out of my body, and I mean catapulted. It was like, I've often said it was like toast popping out of a toaster. It was very dramatic, and it was though, and I don't know I don't know how to define the memory, but it was as though there was a, a sinewy, silvery cord from the crown of my head to the heel of my feet, and somebody pulled back on it like an archer's bow. And when that popped against my back... I heard an audible pop, and I went flying out of that body, and I went further and further away, floating away from that body and so much happened so fast and I've always thought of myself i mean i I think of myself as fairly educated, fairly smart, fairly articulate. I mean, I was a reporter for years, I've written nine books, and yet it felt like it felt like my brain went from sixty amps to a hundred thousand amps. I was like I never knew that this is what it's supposed to be like. And it really was like awakening from a dream. It was like the fifty-nine years of living were as though it were a dream. And it really was like waking up. I, I can't I can't emphasize that enough. So one of the first things that happened in this new experience is I realized <laughs> I realized I said I said my first words out of my mouth in this new form, which I'm still sorting out exactly what this new form is, but I said, mm-hmm. My heart is stopped. And I thought, wow, how do I know that? I thought, I don't know how I know that, but I know that's right. And then I thought, I'm dying. And then I said, and I'm saying these things out loud. I mean, I live alone. I'm a writer. I'm neurotic. I think too much. I ruminate too much. And I talk to myself. But I thought, actually, I I thought I'm dying. And then I thought, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. Because, you know, when you're going on to your reward, the most important thing is correcting your tense. And then I thought, I laughed out loud. I giggled. I thought that's pretty funny, you know, that I am I have to correct my tense. And I heard myself giggle. And that was absolutely enchanting, intriguing, captivating, all of it, because I thought, I don't have breath sounds. I'm pretty sure I don't have vocal cords. And I don't know if I have ears. But I giggle. Not only do I still have my bizarre, moribund sense of humor, I still have my funny little giggle. And I thought, how am I hearing this? How am I doing this? How am I knowing this? And my voice sounded exactly as it does all the time. And I was just, again, enchanted by this, that everything I am went with me. And that was, again, a predominant thought. Every single thing that defines me had gone with me. And then I even, I remember thinking, my whole life, I've wondered what would take me out. And I thought, It was a stupid medical procedure, a very simple medical procedure. And then I thought, one less thing to be worried about, because, you know, I've always been a little worried about how it would all end, and it just did. And it was no big deal. And I even remember thinking, I wish I'd known for 59 years that my ending would be relatively inconsequential. Yeah, I had eight hours of anxiety between the surgery and waking up and all that blood and and passing out from that dilaudid and blood loss, but I thought, you know, all in all, it wasn't a bad ending. (laughs) I closed my eyes after getting a shot of morphine and off we go. And one of the first things that happened, I mean, that was immensely comforting. I can't define that enough. I mean, I had always been 99% sure that we go on. But to know that we do and to know that my giggle went with me and that everything I am went with me. And one of my thoughts was, what did I leave on that gurney? And I thought the stress, the anxiety, the sadness, the regret, the despair, all the negative emotions stayed. And then I remember thinking, I've always wondered what I would look like with none of that negativity, with only the beautiful spiritual qualities that really define us. And I thought, wow, I'm pretty cool, you know, without all that negativity and that darkness. And and I'm not I'm not a negative person, but boy, had I been through a lot. And I even remember thinking about my husband's suicide and I thought, clean slate, it's over. This is what I've been wanting. I wanted a clean slate, and I got it, and it's over. And I even remember thinking, I did not do this to myself. 29 months of trying to fight off suicidal urges, and I did not do this to myself. And it was such a sweet, blessed relief. And I remember thinking my children will not have to deal with a mother that killed herself. You know, that had always been a worry to me. and probably one of the things that kept me alive. So, you know, I, I remembered everything. I remembered Bible verses. I remembered... It was like my memory got lit up. And I thought, you know, this is so cool. It's not the six pounds of hamburger meat between our ears that retains memory. It's consciousness that hangs on to memory. And all those memories were right there with me. And, pardon me, very early on, I realized that I was, I had somebody with me. And it was a very tall, powerful, powerful, powerful presence slightly behind me and to my left. And I turned my head to my left. And again, I'm floating in this perfect blackness. I know some people talk about seeing their body as they float away. And I really believe that was God's mercy. Because I found out what happened after my death and the doctor comes rushing in and they—they they, my buddy had been shooed out into the hallway. But he said they went flying down the hallway with one of those carts, you know, with a defibrillator and everything. But he also said they opened the door to the little ER four times and carried out armfuls of linen soaked in blood. So, apparently, when they had packed me with gauze, they did not stop the bleeding, they just stopped the mess. And so, I had continued to bleed profusely. So, after they removed that gauze, they discovered that I had literally bled to death. So, honestly, I'm grateful I did not see that. But I was floating away in this perfect blackness, and the blackness was comforting, comfortable, peace joy, gentleness. I've heard another ear describe it as velvety, and that's a beautiful description. It was just the most, it was comfort as a verb. Yeah. This blackness actively comforted me. So early on, I feel this massive presence beside me, and I turned my head to the left, and I thought, this is pretty interesting. I have a head, I have a left shoulder, I have an awareness of left and right. I'm, I'm in some form that is a reminder of what I had on earth. And I, I look up and of course I'm in blackness. I can't see who has joined me, but I say with literally with a lilt in my voice, I say, and who are you? <laughs> and the answer was immediate. And the answer was not just words. You know, the Bible says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I get that now because the words came with an infusion of understanding and knowledge. I wasn't just given the word. It was infused into my essence, my being, my consciousness, my me, and the an- the answer was you, Rosemary. You are the image and likeness. I am the original, and that's Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven. And I thought, throughout my life, I have endeavored to understand what that Bible verse means. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? And with that infusion of knowledge, I got it. And I remember thinking that is amazing and that would have been wonderful to know back there but got it let's move on and you know this has happened three and a half years ago and not a day goes by that i don't think about that multiple times a day what it means to be the image and likeness of the original so this all this whole thing went on and on and on and then at some point in this experience i felt a spiritual being with me not this massive presence but now i like can i guess an angel a spiritual companion. And as I floated along in this blackness, still floating further and further away, I had a memory, again, a very intense memory of having been an infant, a newborn, even. And I said, you know, I've been in this blackness before, you know, in this experience. I've, I've been here before. How do I know that? How do I remember that? And the angelic being with me said, remember your mom told you that as an infant, You went through a catastrophic illness, and you were given up for dead. Three weeks old, they said I was going to die within minutes, and my mother was ushered out of the room, out of the hospital room. And uh, the angelic being told me, you didn't almost die then. (laughs) You actually crossed over, and we sent you back. And again, this came with an infusion of knowing. And the reason that's so remarkable is my entire life, Ever since Raymond Moody's book came out, Life After Life in, I think it was 76 or 78, I wore that paper back out. I wore that. I, I read that thing over and over again. I read Daniel Brinkley, Betty Eadie, uh, Eben Alexander, all of them. I just was fascinated about NDEs. And I've also been a weirdo my whole life. You know, the oddball. The one that yeah. knows when people die, you know. The one that sees the, that hears the angels talk to her. So that explained a lot. Again, I thought, you know, that would have been good to know back there, but whatever. Let's move on. So many things happened. One of the things that happened, I heard, I, I thought about the Bible verse, the peace that passeth all understanding, and that was Paul said that. And I thought, that, that's this peace. Nobody could understand this peace without experiencing it. That is this peace, and now I understand it. And then ultimately I was i i swear it feels like somebody took my batteries out i don't remember the transition but i ended up in a white room and i don't remember i don't remember how we went from me floating in the blackness to standing on my own two feet in a white room but we sure did and so i'm standing on my feet in this big beautiful white room and there was nothing in it but white and the walls the floor the ceiling were all this perfect luminescent iridescent perfect white you know my background's actually in architectural history and with uh paint to create the the most pure white you put a little tiny bit of blue in it and this room was perfect white and it was illuminated everything around me was creating light and yet there wasn't a light source per se the walls and everything created their own light and in this room there was a very i don't know it was like a fog but it was a a mist and yet it wasn't cold or damp again the temperature the climate was perfect and this mist was very very thick and yet I could see ahead of me, I don't know, 15, 25 feet, there was a door. And having read all these NDE books, I knew exactly what that door meant. That door meant we were done. That door meant, once I got to that door, I knew, I knew I'd knew i be safely ensconced in heaven. And I pretty much said to anybody that might even be in earshot, I said, you know, I want I want the door. I know what this means. I want the door. It's been a hard life, hard 59 years. I'm done. And... I didn't know I so wish I'd looked at my hands my feet my something to see what I looked like you know and yet even though this thick fog was in this room I could see through it which is kind of interesting I could see that door and I remember thinking very distinctly I don't know if I have feet and I don't know if I have legs but I know that I can move with intention so I thought all right let's get to that door and I moved toward the door and I I looked at this mist and it was swirling around me. This was not just falling. It was like the mist was alive. Every droplet was alive. And every droplet was shiny and bright. And it, it danced around me. Like I, it swirled and moved around me, all through me, in me, around. I just, anyway, I, I could tell it was alive. This mist was alive. And I asked the the angel that was with me, I said, I I feel like I should be able to focus on an individual droplet, but I can't. And I know that sounds nuts. I mean, when's was the last time you were in a fog and thought you ought to be able to focus on a droplet? But I felt like I should be able to. And the angel's answer was so immediate and clear. She said, it's light. It's a particle. Of, each droplet is a particle of light. And she said, you can't focus on it because your spiritual eyes have not acclimated to this new environment yet. But that's each itty-bitty droplet is a particle of light. And she said, you can't go into heaven sullied by the world's muck, that it all has to be washed away. And she said, there are people who die with a disease process, whether it's a mental illness, a physical illness, heavy problems, so imprinted on their consciousness that they think it's part of them when it's part of their body, but it's not part of their spiritual nature. And she said... It was likened to a spiritual car wash that we get really cleaned before we go into heaven. As my friend Sandy told me, she said, leave your muddy boots at the door. So I thought that was really, really wonderful. And, you know, somewhere in this experience in the white room, and I can't define exactly where on the timeline, because honestly, time is a linear construct. You know, Einstein said to those of us who are committed physicists, the past, present, and future are only illusion, however persistent. And there is no time in that place. And it felt like it felt like some of these things were happening concurrently. But anyway, so one of the messages that was conveyed to me was if I, if I agreed to go back, whether I agreed to go back or whether I went forward, I would be healed of all the grief, the sadness, the despair... It was was all going to... It's all been washed away in the white room. And I got to that door, very excited that this is almost over. I mean, I knew I was in the vestibule. You know, I knew I was just in the foyer. And I got to that door, and I noticed the door was shut. I thought, you know, that's odd. That door should be open. (laughs) Every NDE account I ever heard talked about an open door. And that old song, going home, going home, I'm just going home. She talks about passing through an open door. So I put my... I started to put my right hand up to push through that door and I remember I asked specifically, is this the divine will for my life? That some stupid little medical mistake ends it. And I didn't even get past, is this divine? I couldn't even get the whole sentence out and the answer was immediate. And the answer was, no, it is not. But whatever you decide, you go with all of God's mercy and grace, blessings, care and love. There is not a wrong decision. And, you know, I didn't think about it then, but I realized that was an answer to one of those prayers, because I can't handle any more decisions. And the decision to stay or to go from life is a pretty big decision. So I thought, I'll take that deal. I'm going. Let me out of here. And uh, as I, again, prepared to move through that door, I had a vision, a very, very, very intense vision And several people asked me, was this vision happening concurrently? No, this was a potential future vision, I believe. But I had a vision of that RN who'd been so motherly to me in my last moments on Earth in that ER. And in this vision, she was now sitting in a hospital supply room on a metal stool. And she was surrounded by linens and supplies and everything you'd find in a supply room. And she was leaning forward and she had her head on her hands and she was sobbing uncontrollably. And she said, I promised that woman I wasn't going to let her die, and I lost her. And I thought about this. I had this vision of her sitting there like an onlooker, like a silent, invisible onlooker. And I thought, I thought, she's an RN about my age, probably not far from retirement. She's been through this a lot. She'll get over this. You know, she signed up for this gig, but I have to go. I can't do this. I have to go. I can't go back to what I left, you know. Because chemo had already been scheduled. Daily radiation had already been scheduled. I mean, I thought about that. I, I'm not going back to that. And then um, I no longer was having this vision. I was co-experiencing her grief and her pain. And it hit me right in the center of my being. And I recognized that agonal grief as the same pain I had known from my husband's death. And it was, it got me. It got me. And I realized if I can spare one person that much pain, I have to go back. And, boy, I tell you what, I put my right hand back at my side, and in a millisecond of a millisecond, I was back on that gurney. Lots of stuff happening. Now I was in a new room. <laughs> I had IVs set up. Everybody in that ER, I think, was in that room. It was very crowded. And I opened my eyes, and that nurse was back in my face. I mean, she would nose-to-nose nose with me. And she said, what is your name? And I said, Rosemary. And she said, what year is it? I said, 2018. And she said, where are you? And I said, a crummy excuse for an ER. (laughs) So uh, lots of things happened after that. I got tossed in an ambulance pretty quick. Like, I swear, I'm not sure because, you know, I'm just back from the dead. But I think it was, I don't know, two or three minutes And, you know, something I learned subsequently, I was actually gone for more than 10 minutes. And the interesting thing about that is they can't do CPR on somebody who bleeds to death because you're just pushing out more blood. So I've gone for more than 10 minutes. My heart had stopped. I should, that's, you know, that's why the nurse was so in my face about what is your name, what year is it, and on and on. I actually, in preparation for writing this book, I interviewed an anesthesiologist and he was telling me, he actually wept when, you know, when I was, when I told him the part about answering those three questions. And I said, what, what is it? And he said, you have no idea how much relief those medical personnel felt when they knew they had done the right thing in bringing you back. He said, often when we resuscitate somebody like that, they're compromised and sometimes severely. So uh, I was whisked away to an am- uh, by ambulance to a trauma center. And then I was in the hospital for several days And uh, the next morning, the first morning I was in the hospital, I got the real doctor, you know, the one that's my age that doesn't have play school on the stethoscope draped around his neck. (laughs) And uh, the real doctor sat down with me and he said, "Uh, Mrs. Thornton, you've had a heart attack. And I said, not me. I bike. I eat veggies. I'm very healthy. I walk. He said, not me. Check. I didn't say. I said, check the name on that folder. (laughs) And he said, nope, nope, nope. I'm sure it was you. And he said, You lost so much blood last night, your heart stopped. And that was very affirming, because what well, yeah, that's the first thing I heard, my heart has stopped. And then he said, And your blood work shows that you had a heart attack, the enzymes are elevated. And he said, But this morning they're already coming back down. So that tells us it's not underlying heart disease, that you've had a heart attack. And they whisked me off as I improved through the days. They whisked me off for an awful lot of tests. One of the things that the doctors said they were gonna do some heart tests because my heart showed damage from having been run dry and the heart attack and as they're wheeling me off I said you know y'all don't need to do this the angels said if I agreed to come back I'd be a-okay so we don't need to do any of this and every test they did I kept saying you know the angels were pretty clear I was going to be fine so we don't need to do any of this and every test showed in fact it was so dear the doctor would come back you know the next morning or whatever and they'd say Mrs. Thornton you're a very lucky woman your heart is fine your heart is perfect you know you're you're Organ function, your kidney functions perfect. Everything's coming out just fine, and uh, it, it, it amazed it amazed the doctors uh, at every point in turn that there were no consequences. And again, I interviewed an ER nurse and an ER doctor, and the nurse had told me a story. Uh, and this was you know about a year after this experience. I wanted to get my facts right for my book, but the nurse told me that she had they had a twenty five year old man who bled to death in their ER and uh, from internal bleeding, and that they had successfully resuscitated him after he bled to a point where his heart stopped. And they got him back, but she said he died 24 hours later because the organ damage was so catastrophic that he couldn't survive it. And for a 59-year-old woman to come back from this with absolutely no lingering effects, I mean, this is three and a half years now. And then the PS to this is it took some time, and I had to find another oncologist. It turns out when you walk into your oncologist's office and they're ready for you to start chemo in a few days, and you say, well, you know what? Uh, actually, I was healed in heaven. We don't that stage two cancer thing. We don't need to worry about that anymore. And boy, that that oncologist, God bless him. I know he's trying to follow his highest sense of right, but I got a lecture on how I would die if this cancer went untreated. And you know, after all, it was stage two, and what a blessing we'd found it when we had. And they were going to start me on cisplatin immediately and daily radiation and on and on and on. And I said, doctor. I feel pretty confident that this has been dealt with in heaven and I don't need this. And he was not happy. And I had to find another oncologist. And then we kind of started again and she did a lot of tests and ultimately did another very involved surgical biopsy, another operation. But she actually, uh, she actually woke me up while I was in recovery, that second doctor. She woke me up and through tears she said, you're right. There is not one cell left of cancer. She said, in fact, this is what she said. Actually, she told my friend who was out in the recovery or out in the waiting area, she said, her flesh is so pink and pretty and perfect that were it not for those medical tests, I would not believe she ever had cancer. So that was pretty dramatic. A number one question I probably get asked is, how do you know you really died? One, I have medical proof. Two, that's pretty dramatic to die with stage 2 cancer, and to come back completely restored. And, you know, the angels told me if I agreed to come back, I'd be healed. The other thing that happened, I noticed early on, I had had arthritis in both wrists, perhaps from being a career writer. The arthritis was gone. I had a busted shoulder and a bad knee, and those were healed as well. The other day I was walking, so I try to walk five miles several times a week, even now. The other day I was walking somewhere and I realized my knee was bothering me. I was like, oh, man, wait a second, this was healed in heaven. And then I realized it was my left knee. And it was my left <laughs> knee that was hurting and my right knee that was, you know, healed in heaven. So I guess I didn't get a lifetime promise against old age. But it's all been pretty dramatic. And uh, so how do I know I really died? So many different reasons, but one I guess one of the biggies are these healings. Shortly after I was back home, uh, I had to have some care at home. It took me a few days to recover completely. But I opened my Bible, and it flopped open to Psalm 23. And the one particular verse looked as though it were literally highlighted, and it said, He restoreth my soul. And I realized, you know, that's the healing. That's the real healing. That's what happened. My soul was restored. And oh, why I'm so grateful for all the ancillary physical healing, the restoration of my soul was the most profound. And after this, I, uh, I changed my life completely. I started selling off all my personal possessions. Every single thing I owned, I sold because I realized my life had been hard. When had I been the happiest? I'd been the happiest in that heavenly experience. And what did I own? Nothing. I owned nothing. I had God. I had the kingdom of heaven. And I owned nothing, and that was the happiest I'd ever been. So that gave me the freedom to sell off heirlooms for my family. I donated a bunch of research materials to a local library. I mean, I wrote nine books. I wrote books about architectural history. I sold off everything. And, you know, it was so cool. I would stand over these items, like my mama's couch that I'd held onto for decades. She'd been dead 20 years. And I thought, you know, this couch is has spiritual qualities of comfort and beauty and and happy memories. I thought, you know, I can hang on to the spiritual qualities and let the thing go. And I asked God to, to bring the right person to buy this item that it would bless them as it had blessed me. And I met so many cool people. So I sold everything. Sold my car. That shocked everybody. I had a really pretty brand new camera. I sold that. And uh, nobody could believe I sold my car. I bought a slightly used Prius. And then I sold my house. Listed it and it sold two hours later. Then I packed my slightly used Prius with a remnant of my earthly belongings, moved a thousand miles due west, moved in with a family member, and lived in the lived in his spare bedroom. And honestly, that you know, looking back at those three prayers, heal me or let me die, I got both. Which is pretty amazing. The second one, spare me the life review, no life review. And three, no more hard decisions. You know? I learned there are no wrong decisions. As long as we're trying to do God's will, as long as we're trying to do that, which blesses all, we're not going to make a wrong choice. So my three prayers of petition, very simple childlike prayers, were beautifully answered. And, you know, it took away the grief. I was, had this not happened, I have no doubt. I mean, the title of my book is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life. That title is for real. I do believe dying saved me. Had it not been for this... I don't know how much longer I could have resisted the suicidal urges, and one of the things that went away forever was that desire to end my life. Because I recognize we're here on a spiritual contract, and you know if we void that, if we breach that, I believe somehow the experience has to be repeated. You know we're, we're we have to go through these experiences, hard as they might be. So mm-hmm. that's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> And boy, am I glad that book is done. Boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. (laughs) Three years I spent working on that book. And and oh, my gosh, so many times I went through hard times, even now. You know, I still have issues. I And issues are wrong. Life is hard. Life is hard when you're a sensitive soul. I still have hard times. So many times I almost pitched that book right into the dumpster. I'm like, you know what? I don't need to do this. I don't want to do this. But friends and others encouraged me to push on, so it did get done.
0: It's fantastic that you finished it. You you were probably one of my first NDE interviews when I started this podcast. And, um, you know, I mean, since then I've done, I don't know, dozens of them. And uh, I think I had told you back then about, like, when I had my NDE with a seizure, and I was, like, in that same blackness that you were in. Mm And, and I was completely aware and, you know, and it was like the, I could feel left and right and, you know, I was still thinking and, and I liked it. Like, I liked it so much that I didn't want to come back. You know, like I never had like the, the room experience. Maybe I wasn't far enough gone. Um, but I know that, you know, the, the piece was absolutely incredible and it took away like any fear of dying and even more importantly, it took away the fear of living, too.
1: Hmm. That's a really good point. That is a very good point.
0: Because they sort of go hand in hand, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have, you know, I, I heard a talk given by a hospice nurse, and she said she can always tell when she walks into the room of somebody who's had an NDE, because they're like, come on, come on, come on, let's get the show on the road, let's do this, let's do this, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, yes,
1: it does take away your fear of dying. It does. It it changed me in so many ways. Uh, you know, somebody said the average end of takes seven years to assimilate the experience because it's see you know, a lot of gravitas there. And they said, so how did you do it in three and or two or whatever? I mean, I'm three and a half years out as I mentioned, but I think I spent fifty nine years figuring out that first thing that happened. You know, so I had mm-hmm. fifty nine years to wonder. I mean, I never knew that I had actually crossed over as an infant. I know my mother had told me that she got ushered out of the hospital about 4 p.m., you know, 1959, and was told uh, it was blood poisoning, actually. I developed a staph infection in the hospital as an infant. And she was told her kidneys have shut down, and now her other organs are failing rapidly. She won't last the night. So my mother was put out of that hospital, and she went home and grabbed a friend in church, and those two women stayed up all night and prayed for me. And my mother told me when she went back to the hospital, I mean, what a long night, you know, what a long night for a mother with a newborn baby. She said that the next morning she was at the hospital as soon as the doors were open. And uh, she said a nun handed me over to her and said, your prayers save this baby. And I, I never knew that until I actually died, that I had been there as an infant. And that made a lot of sense, you know. That explains so much of my life. I mean, as a kid, I heard and saw things that other people didn't. And I'd say, did you see that? And people would say no. And I just thought everybody heard and saw those things. I mean, it does isolate you as a kid when you're different.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know about that seven-year thing. Um, like I know like my experience changed me a lot. Um you know, that's one of the reasons I started the podcast because, you know, it made me just reevaluate like what's important, you know, and uh, I don't know, maybe in a bad way because now like work and money are sort of like the least important thing to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, ha- ha- enjoying life and having fun, <laughs> and trying to be like a little bit more of a positive influence are probably more important.
1: Yeah, that's, you know what, that's interesting. Um one of the big things that happened, I mean, there was so much more that happened after this, but <clears throat> one of the things, pardon me, one of the things the angels told me was that this whole experience had been encapsulated, you know, all the the sadness and the pain and the misery and the the rough stuff with my husband. I mean, this, you know, just the, the challenges, the ugliness, that it had been encapsulated and it couldn't hurt me anymore. And that was such an interesting term to use for an architectural historian because often, when you're dealing with a potential contaminant, it's better to con- encapsulate it rather than try to remove remove it. Sometimes, in its removal, you um, you break it uh, you break it up and, and and put more of it into the environment. So that encapsulation was such a blessing. But that's what I was told. This has been encapsulated. This cannot hurt you. This cannot hurt you anymore. And there were so many questions about him that were answered. I mean, one of the questions I asked is, "Where is my husband now?" Because there's a lot of people that believe that, you know, when you die, uh, when you die by suicide, you you go into darkness or go to hell or anything like that. And the angel said, well, he's with us. And I said, okay, but where? Where, you know, like what's, what's he experiencing now? What's happening? And they said, none of your business. <laughs> I said, wait, what? That's kind of brusque for beings that keep company with the most high God. What do you mean none of my business? He was my husband. And they said... We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. You do not work out his salvation. And I had prayed for him so faithfully. He had been an agnostic, and I really thought it was my duty to make him a believer, you know, bring him to an understanding of the, of God. And I was in misery afterwards, reeling this man died, and I failed. You know, I, I took it upon myself as my personal charge to teach him about the things of divinity, and I failed. And that none of your business was so liberating, so liberating. I mean, we're not responsible for another human being's salvation or their suicide or any of that. And it was just right for me. It was exactly what I needed to hear to set me free. And even now, there are times I think, oh gosh, you know, it's, there's still times when I feel these little bits of doubt and guilt. And then I think, no, no, that's not on me. You know, that, that he's with God. And he's okay, but it is none of my business. That is just so liberating.
0: Absolutely. Also, one of the th- common elements, too, that I have heard, um, too, is um, people being healed after their near death experience. I'll say I've had about maybe four or five interviews where I've heard that happen. Um, and it, it's just kind of. Uh, I don't know. It's, it, you know, it's always the same thing, too. It's like that mist or, or, or some type of water or something like that, that, or shower type of experience that people have. And then when they return, they're healed. And a lot of times they're hmm. healed, not just the physical elements, but of, uh, mental suffering as well.
1: Huh. I, you know, that's fascinating because I, I can't say that I have, I've, you know, when they were loading me into that ambulance out of that ER and, the, you know, they've whisked me out, and put me in an ambulance, take me to a, a real hospital. One of the thoughts was I just had an NDE, but it was nothing like I've read about. In fact, that's one of the frequently asked questions I get is how do we know we're, you're not making this up? Well, I've spent my life reading about them. If I was going to make up something, it would be a lot more traditional. You know, let's have a field of wildflowers. Let's have a tunnel. Let's have whoosh sounds. You know, let's have something that mirrors the stories we all hear. Mine was so unique, but that's interesting that others experience the the cleansing, you know, the whiteness, the cleansing, the mist, the rain.
0: Yeah, yeah, it actually seems to be pretty common, and um, huh. and I'm sure you like, like um, you know, you know about I guess like like it was PMH who sort of has like the three classifications of the NDE, like the white light experience. Black light experience and in a clear light experience, huh? And um, you know, apparently like, the white light is the most common. Um, black light is a little bit more rare, and then like the clear light is like the rarest.
1: Oh really? Mm-hmm. Huh. I didn't know that either. I guess I need to go back to reading about NDEs. Huh. <laughs> you know, Not honestly, really. I actually took a break from reading about them. <laughs> Because I wanted to get my book done. I didn't want to be influenced by anybody else's stories. So I I, I haven't read any any new books about that probably, well, shoot, probably now in years.
0: All you got to do is go back in my episodes. You can listen to one of my PMH (laughs) interviews. She talks about it.
1: That is, I I will do that.
0: You can skip the book. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, you know that that's a really good point. We are turning more into a nation of podcast listeners and less into book readers.
0: It is. That's one of the reasons why I question whether I'm gonna write another book or not.
1: Oh man. I am so writing right now. I mean I, I I boy, oh boy, writing is intense. It's just intense. But it's it's over. I got it done, you know, yay. But, yeah, it was just very difficult. Part of what made it difficult was that um, I had to revisit some hard times, mm-hmm. you know. I had to go back and think about think about some very difficult times in my life, and that was a challenge. And yet, again, it was also therapeutic because I recognized I was pretty messed up, and and this healed me. I mean, this was – people were really shocked at what a transformation there had been Uh you know, people said I even looked different. Um, I don't know. It was just—it was so dramatic. It was so draconian. You know, a funny aside: when I went into the hospital, uh, they weigh me. I mean, I—you know—I don't know if they do it in the wheelchair. I don't know how they do it, but they weigh you when you're put in the hospital. And then when I left, and they had me living on beef broth and oh man, what else? Jello and a, a clear liquid diet because the idea was if the bleeding started again, they'd have to whisk me away to surgery. So they had me on just clear liquids in case another in case some emergency surgery was needed so 4 days i was on clear liquids and do you know in that 4 days i gained 10 pounds i was like you got to be kidding me i'm living on nothing but salt and the occasion jello cup and i gained 10 pounds <laughs> i couldn't believe it
0: that is some hardcore jello <laughs> if you're in a
1: hospital
0: i know since that's pretty much like all they'll give you anyway, <laughs> like Jello and soup.
1: I know. <laughs> so yeah, it was um, it was it's quite a thing. All, the whole thing was quite a thing. I think I had mentioned prior that uh, my blood work upon admission to that hospital was real bad. I mean, it's just barely enough to keep a human being alive. Obviously, I think my hemoglobin was like six point seven or maybe even lower. I don't know. But two weeks later, I had to go and have blood work done um, for one of the doctors, I don't remember who. And the doctor looked at the numbers, and she said, well, there's a mistake on your blood work. And I said, well, what is it? She said, well, your numbers are textbook perfect. She said, that's impossible. She said, it takes your bone marrow two to three months to produce um, the blood cells, you know, the, the fresh blood and the new blood cells. And I said, no, that's right. I'm I'm back on my bike. You know, I'm I'm riding gently, but I'm back on my bike. The breathlessness is gone. I'm walking a mile a day, I'm fine. And she, I remember so clearly. She put that paper down, looking at those numbers, and she said, "That's impossible." <laughs> yes. But it is possible. Um, and I did ask the angels. I said, mm-hmm. "You know, why why couldn't I have instantaneous healing after I bleed to death? I come back from heaven. Why wasn't that healing instantaneous?" And the angels told me. They said, "We know the disciple with whom you most identify is doubting Thomas." We needed you to see that you did bleed to death. This wasn't a close call. This wasn't, uh, you know, this uh, wasn't something that almost happened. You did bleed to death, and we wanted you to have that on paper to help you understand the enormity of this experience.
0: Mm-hmm. So, other than the book, have you done anything else to like? What, is, what are things that you mentioned early in the interview? Was when you first went to see the doctor after your husband's suicide, and sort of like how ignorant he was to how to handle somebody who dealt with trauma. Um, are you doing anything to maybe reach out to the medical community to, you know, create some awareness around that subject?
1: I have not, and maybe I should. You know, one of my dreams, if if my book does well and provides enough. Income, my huge dream is to create a foundation to provide assistance to suicide widows, as we are known. because fifty years ago, when a woman was sexually assaulted, she would get reattacked really by either legal, legal profession, law enforcement, whatever, like, well, why were you on the street at three in the morning? Why was your skirt so tight? Did you really need to be wearing those stiletto heels? Why didn't you tell him no? We blame the victim. And now we have all kinds of advocacy groups in place to protect people who are victims of sexual assault. Well, we'll, we're still in the dark ages on suicide. Within hours, two hours, I mean, I was was in Boston when this happened, uh, when he died, and I had to get on a plane to fly back. And so I'm on an airplane, and they're, you know, still waiting for takeoff and everything, and I get a phone call, and it's the police... And he identifies himself as, uh, I don't know if it was a captain or a sergeant within the local police department. And he said, I understand you had an argument with your husband right before he pulled the trigger. What was the nature of that argument? And I said, what? And he said, this argument you had with your husband, what was the nature of the argument? And I said, this is not an appropriate question to ask me right now. And if you want to talk to me, I will be back home in a few hours. And I will talk to you then. But I will not talk right now. And the thing was, that is so common. Uh, some woman, brilliant woman, wrote a blog on 10 reasons you shouldn't kill yourself. And one of the top reasons is because your wife will become the prime suspect in a homicide investigation. And that is true. Women get grilled about, well, where were you when he did this? Are you familiar with how to use guns? Why are your fingerprints on the bullet? I mean, on and on and on and on, we've got to stop that, because if you want to talk about suicide prevention, we have a known risk group, the people who survived this, like me and other suicide widows and other people who've lost a son or daughter to suicide. Depending on whose statistics you believe, we are 12 to 48 times more likely to end our own lives than the average population. So there we have a known risk group, and what do we do? We isolate them. We treat them like lepers. We, we make sure that they don't have access to free mental health care. And forget free. After my husband's suicide, my children got on the phone and blew it up trying to find a psychiatrist. And as soon as anybody could see me, it was three and a half weeks out. When you're measuring your day in 15-minute increments, and as soon as anybody can see you, is three and a half weeks out. That's an eternity. And then the other thing is so many people are ill-equipped to deal with this. Clergy was worthless, frankly. I, I did one of those altar calls after a church service where they said, anybody who has a prayer need, come forward, and our people will pray for you. And I was like, I, I need some prayer. So I went forward, and one of the people in a very popular church, I had three people standing there praying over me, and they said, okay, before we start, uh, you need to confess your sins. I said, okay, well, I, I miss my husband, and I regret that sometimes we argued. And she said, no, there's something more here. And I said, okay, sometimes I was a shrew, I guess. And she said, you need to confess your sins if we're going to pray for you properly. And I said, what are we going for here? And she said, a man like your husband would not have killed himself without a good reason. And you know what? The rest of my time, I have never, ever gone forward for one of those altar calls because frankly they feel like a dirty trick and i actually reported that to the head minister of that church and he defended these elders and their position is indefensible so we blame women who survive this the clergy doesn't help the psychiatric community doesn't know what to do we we don't give them financial resources and the police attack them and that has to stop if we really want to get serious about preventing suicide Let's let's help the people like me. And you know, I'm in a Facebook group of suicide survivors. Right. Three of the women in that group, three of the suicide widows, have killed themselves in the last five years. So we need if we if I, I get very angry, 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 angry when people talk about suicide prevention because all of us who've survived it, we're already doing the woulda shoulda, woulda, coulda. You know, we it's 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 agony to do that. But now we're gonna say uh by the way we're going to ostracize you don't talk to us you frighten us you know when we had my husband's visitation it was a closed casket closed casket visitation for obvious reasons and i see the long line of people coming forward to offer their condolences and it's invariable that you see the couples approaching the casket and as they come forward all of them are squeezing their spouse a little bit tighter and then and then there are the few frankly idiots who come up to you and say I don't know what I'd do if anything happened to my Bobby. I'd just lay down and die. And I wanted to say to them, well, you know what? I guess I didn't love my husband as much as you love your Bobby. People say things to comfort themselves, and they need to stop that. They say things because you frighten them. They they stay away from you because they think that somehow what you went through is catching. And they want to make sure that what you have have had happen never happens to them. But, yeah, when you want to help somebody in trauma... Show up and shut up. They don't need to hear platitudes, <laughs> cliches. He's in a better place. This happened for a reason. God doesn't give us more than he can than we can handle. Yeah, God does give us more than we can handle because, you know what, maybe if it works out, if our knees don't buckle from the pain and the weight of it all, maybe God can help us through it. But God gives us more than we can handle all the time. And I just, I get so angry. And, you know, I actually had a meal with somebody, a holiday meal with somebody, and after the holiday meal, they got up and they went in the kitchen and I looked out at them and I saw them sobbing over the sink, sobbing. And I got up there, I got up and I walked out to the kitchen and I stood next to her and I said, you doing okay? And she said, no. And she said, she said, my uh, I have a loved one who killed himself. And I said, believe it or not, I understand. And she said, how could you? And I told her. And I said, what I said was, they did an awful thing to us, didn't they? And she said, yes. And I said, and we somehow have to pretend to be happy all the damn time, don't we? And she said, yes. And and ultimately, I got her to giggle a little bit, and I got her to laughing. And we became fast friends. But I, I, I can... I can talk to people like that because I get it. Just like when I was hurting so bad, people talk to me. The people who said to me, my son killed himself seven years ago, and I understand. I wanted to hear what they had to say. Mm-hmm. I wanted to hear more from them. But these people with all these hackneyed cliches, I have no interest in their opinion. Yeah.
0: F cliches. <laughs> I yeah. understand that. You know, anytime I've been through like a bad situation, and people would throw cliches at me, it would just make me more angry. Like when my parents passed away, it made me more angry. Um, and, and like, I mean, I had a, a friend. That I used to work with him. This was about 35 years ago. We worked together and then after work, we, you know, we'd go to his house and play guitar and eat and hang out. We were pretty close. And he, um, well, he shot his girlfriend, and then shot himself. It was a, a homicide-suicide type of situation. And never, like, I would try to share that with people, and people just was like, you know, they would say stupid crap. It never yes. made it better. No, nobody ever said anything ever to me to make me feel better about that. <laughs> ever. I know.
1: I know. Healing, you know, one of the things somebody shared with, you know, it's pretty interesting. After my husband did this, I didn't want anybody talking to me because they weren't helping. And there were a few, and I mean in the hours and days after this, there were a few people that came in and knew what to say and knew what to do. One of the great blessings was this woman who was a friend, and she kind of been a friend on the periphery of my life. She came over and she sat on the couch with me, and she would just hold me while I screamed. And I am an incredible insanely private self-disciplined person and yet the noises that came out of my mouth surprised even me and my daughter came to call it the pterodactyl scream but i would just screech it was like somehow the only way i could let the pain out this friend she never ever said stop that screaming she never ever said stop that crying. she put her arm around me and held me like like a child you know, I mean, we're sitting side by side on the couch. She just draped her arm over my shoulder and held me like a child. And she said, she would say, what she would say, why don't you just be quiet? And then she'd say, there's going to be a day when this doesn't hurt this bad, but that's not today. You know, that touched my heart. I remember it. I don't remember crap from those early days, but I remember that. And then another person that came, I said, I need to talk to, um, a friend <laughs> and this friend had lost somebody very close to her to suicide years earlier so they my people <laughs> my people went out and got this woman and she came to my house and when she appeared they said she's here and I jumped out of bed because I was spending all my time in bed and you know, my house is full of guests and visitors and everything and I ran to her and I looked in her face and she was crying and she just threw her arms around me and she just held me and the two, and us two women just stood there crying because i knew she got it i knew she got it and that's what i tried to do with my book and i don't know if i succeeded or not but i tried to put my arms around the people who have been this been through this and just hold them and and tell them like i did with my friend that day you know just just hold me and let me cry and i hope and pray that my book accomplishes that one thing to be a comfort to others that are going through this. Yeah.
0: I do too. There definitely is um I do too. You know, there's definitely a need for some type of support and advocacy with suicide because suicide when you experience it is not like anything else. Like, I know, like for me it was confusing, you know, and he was just a friend of mine, you know, it wasn't like a significant other or anything like that. But it confused me in a way that, you know, I can still say like 35 years later, I'm still confused by it.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, and it's frequently been said suicide is a death like no other. And that's true. And that's that's, you know, it's interesting you use the word confusion. That's oh, that's a great word. That's part of what took me down was why did he do this? I thought he loved me. I thought we loved each other. I thought he cared about me. I thought he worried about me. How could he do this to me? I must ask those questions, shoot, a thousand times, if not more. And, you know, the other, boy, I tell you, one of the other big life lessons I learned, I, after I moved out of my friend Tracy's house, I moved into a rental unit, and I had to have a caretaker. A very sweet friend offered to move into this house with me and share expenses, which was hugely helpful. So we got a three-bedroom, two-bath house. I had a dog at the time, love that dog. And so we lived together, and he helped me remember to eat, which I lost uh, forty pounds, which is pretty much everything I could lose. And but so this neighbor saw us moving into this new rental house, or this you know nineteen sixties rental house. And this neighbor appeared on my door one morning, and she had a plate full of delicious little. She had rice krispie treats. Who doesn't love <laughs> rice krispie treats? And I'm still in badly wounded mode. This is about four months after his suicide, and so I introduced myself, and she said I saw the moving truck. I thought you might need a snack. And she handed me this beautiful plate of, you know, these tasty marshmallow (laughs) treats. And, uh, I was still so wounded. And I said, uh, I, yeah, I used to live over there and I had to move to a few cities away because my husband killed himself and I'm, I'm not doing well. And this young woman burst into tears and I felt so bad that I had said something that had upset her so much. And she composed herself pretty quickly and she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She said, my brother killed himself several years ago. And people don't understand what it does to you. What it does to the family. She said, our family will never be the same. And I have subsequently learned that when I do say, you know, if I and I'm less prone to share it these days verbally, but when I do say that, somebody will burst into tears. Mm -hmm. And I look at them and I say, oh, you lost someone too. And they just nod. You know, it's it's quite a weird group to be, weird is the wrong word, it's quite a hard group to be part of. But boy, it sure is easy to identify one another.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's weird. And like, Also, like with my friend who, who who did the suicide, the homicide suicide, I'll say about like 20 years later, I ended up working with his brother. And I didn't realize it was his brother right away. And then I went up to him, I said, are, are, are you Bill's brother? And he goes, yeah. I said, oh, I knew Bill. And like after that, like the dude didn't want to talk to me anymore. Because like, he was just like, oh because nobody knew, you know. It was just uncomfortable for him.
1: Yes. I struggle with that too. I, I mean I I don't know the reason. I don't know the details, but it's it is so um discomforting. You know, I mean I, I still honestly, subsequent to my NDE there's part of me, well, like over Christmas, I, I, I've been on a lot of podcasts. I get a lot of emails. Boy, do I, oh, and I should mention my website, speaking of emails, temporarydeath.com. I like telling people I don't consider mine a near death experience. I, you know, I went there and came back. So that's temporary death, hence the name of my website, <laughs> temporarydeath.com. But over the holidays, this Christmas and New Year's, I, you know, I went back into the valley. I got pretty sad. I did a lot of crying because I just missed him. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's, a, that's a different kind of grief. You know, I, I wish I could decorate the tree with him again. I wish I could hear his beautiful baritone voice. I wish I could. I, he was two inches shorter than me and a little bit fluffy. And I used to go and, and I'd take my index f- finger and I gently poke him in his tummy and he would do the Pillsbury Doughboy laugh and, you know, and flail his arms and everything. And it always cracked me up.
0: That I would do this,
1: and he always did it flawlessly, you know. And I missed that, and I realized over Christmas I had never really permitted myself to just grieve. I'd been so twisted up and confused by the suicide. I never had a chance to just grieve this man. So I spent the holidays doing some serious crying and uh, I guess what I'm saying, I'm not some uh, Bodhisattva, you know, I'm not some hmm. mystic. I'm a human being that went through a heck of a lot. I managed to come back, but I, I have finally disconnected from the agony of that, of the way he died, which is huge.
0: It is. Wow. Yeah. So um, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. I think we covered oh, some you. things that we didn't cover previously. Uh, yes. And uh, before we wrap it up, I mean, this time you get the plug your website, and your book. <laughs> finally, your book, yes. <laughs> after talking about the book coming out, is finally out.
1: <laughs> yes, and it is up on Amazon, which is very exciting. But yeah, my website, I mean, I don't know how hard it is to remember to, to remember the title, but it is Remembering the Light, How Dying Saved My Life, and it's up at Amazon. But if you go to my website, uh, TemporaryDeath.com, it has some more information on the book. And I have a, a sample chapter up at the website if people want to read it so they can they can sample a chapter before they commit i think at amazon somebody told me you can read two free chapters before you actually have to buy the book so lots of places you can take a look i i hope folks enjoy it above all you know i had so many freaking panics about should i really write this book this this i don't need it i don't need the publicity i don't i don't want i don't want to be in the public spotlight you know don't want it don't need it i'm very private But then I thought, you know, there were so many human angels that helped me along the way, like the woman with the Rice Krispie treats. and uh, Because, you know what, subsequent to that story, briefly, she looked at me and she said, you look pretty gaunt. Are you eating? And I said, no, I have no appetite. I'm sick to my stomach all the time. She said, I'm going to bring you dinner every other night until you tell me to stop. And I'll bring enough for two nights. And she said, so you're going to have a dinner delivered to your door every other night. Until you tell me to not do it anymore. And you know, that really turned things around. That's when I started eating again. That's when I stopped losing weight. And boy, what a loving thing to do. And I offered her money repeatedly and she declined. But uh, what an incredible thing, eh? And so anyway, I I realized in writing this book, this book is really, as much as anything, it's a public thank you note. It's saying, you did this thing and it changed my life. And by the way, this is how you help people who've been through trauma. You don't say this. You don't say that. You show up with a meal and you say, I'm going to bring you a meal every other night until you're until you're on. You can stand on your own two feet again. That's what you do. That's the right thing to do. So it is, this book is largely just a public thank you to those incredible people. I mean, it's one thing, you know, the good Samaritan story, he, the good Samaritan hefted the wounded traveler up on the, the donkey and took him to the innkeeper and gave the innkeeper some money. That's, a lovely thing to do it's a good thing to do but it's something else when you move somebody into your home and take care of them for four months it's something else when you live with somebody for two years and make sure they eat occasionally i mean that's heavy lifting but and i would tell these people i told them too many times to count i said i am beyond economical repair let me go just let me fade off into the sunset stop trying to save me i'm not worth it but they saw something in me I could not see in myself, and so they kept trying. And that's the other reason I had to write this book, is because I I have to I don't know I I guess I I want I want the people to know this story, I want to glorify God, and I want to I want to say this is how you help, this is how you are a helper.
0: Wow, it's incredible, you know, and it's nice too to hear something about the goodness of humanity for change.
1: That's a really good point, actually. You're right. There are so many good people. And you know what's fascinating? When my husband and I, we lived in a beautiful house in a beautiful place. And we had these parties where all these fancy folks would come. I mean, you know, we, we had a good life. And you know, after his death, the fancy folks went away. And you know who saved me was the uh, the simple folks, the folks who aren't sure how to Make the uh, make the electric bill payment that month. You know the folks who who are grateful when they find a five dollar bill in an old coat pocket. Those are the folks who stepped into the fray to save to save me. Hmm.
0: Yeah, they're the ones that usually understand.
1: Yes. Yep. All mm-hmm. those fancy friends we had vanished.
0: Hmm. Well. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for oh, coming thank you. back on. Thank and you, and thank you
1: for the opportunity to, to do this again and to share my book. I'm Yay good. on the book. I'm I know. I'm so proud of myself <laughs> for finishing that <laughs> lugubrious task. Yep, now well, it's time for, for the sequel. It's laborious. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, let's talk about that, uh, like, in 20 or 30 years.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for coming on and uh, hang on for one moment and I'm just going to play the outro and then the um, links to your website and to the book on Amazon will be in the notes of this episode
1: thank you thank you thank you for listening to Everything
0: Imaginable you can reach
2: Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com Com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed.